The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Is the M&A market getting desperate? That's the question we're tackling on this week's Viewsery, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry. My co-host is Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hi. And we're also joined in the studio today by Lauren Silverlofen, who we normally keep in exile in Dallas. Lauren, well done for escaping. Thanks for having me. So it feels like a great time to be an investment banker. Announced deals have hit a record for the first four months of the year totaling $1.7 trillion. That's a 66% increase over the same period last year. In the past few days alone, deals worth more than $120 billion have hit the tape, including a long-mooted merger of T-Mobile and Sprint, and the Sainsbury supermarket chain subsuming Walmart's UK business. Corporate executives are feeling pretty bullish in general as well, judging by the mood at the Milken Institute's annual fest in Los Angeles this week. And that would seem to suggest even more tie-ups are on the way. Lauren, as one of our M&A gurus, what is not to like about all of this? <laughs> well, we're seeing some situations pop into the mix that have some pretty ugly aspects to them. Um, but, you know, what can you say? The markets are up and CEO confidence seems to be up. And when everybody's excited, they tend to push forward on deals that they shouldn't got a- be. Got a lot of money coming through as well, haven't they, from tax cuts last year? Yeah, everybody's so, feeling a little bit richer. Yeah, whether um, it's more cash or, or that's better right. earnings. That's so. right. More cash, better earnings. Multiples have gone up a little bit. And, um, you know, you kind of get the sense that there's this last gasp happening among not only companies, but the investment bankers who advise them and get paid lots of money when these deals actually get, go through. All right. So, so talk us through one um, that you think is looking a bit desperate or dodgy. I think you've probably got a great example. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Xerox situation is pretty crazy. What um, is going on? It's so it's one of these M&A situations that rarely comes along. And um, and it, it starts with a company that's not doing very well. Which so one, Fuji or Xerox? Xerox, really. <laughs> okay. I mean, um, Fuji's not doing great either. They sort of need each other. They already have a relationship. And, um, you know, and so it starts with a sticky situation. And then, um, you know, Icon and this guy, Darwin Deason, who's in Dallas, they struck a deal a, a few months ago. And, um, and, the two activists come in, they don't like the way that the deal has been arranged. It all comes to a head sort of the end of last week when a judge comes down and says, actually, the CEO of Xerox, who's a guy named Jeff Jacobson, was horribly conflicted in putting this deal together. And when you read through his um, his the sort of judge's statement, it, it talks a lot about how he's had this back and forth with Xerox and keeping his job. And basically, he's arranged a deal where he's going to be CEO of this company after it struck. The problem is, so this is... This is after he's told by the board that he may lose his job. That's exactly right. So in the midst of all of this, um, Xerox's advisors, who are center view, have come in and said, we think that that perhaps you should look at other options. We think that there could be better options. We're not sure you're really doing the right thing. There's some back and forth w- between the board members. And they've gone and said, you know, we don't like what the CEO is doing. We're going to be looking for a new CEO. And at the same time, the CEO has gone behind sort of what looks to be behind their back and arranged this deal with Xerox so and how, Fuji. How has the board not acted to get rid of him. If, if he's out there negotiating a deal to try and save his job when they're talking about firing him, 
how on earth did this deal get done? Who knows? I, I mean, that's what I mean. So that's one of the problems, right? And it's it's it resulted in not only Jacobson losing his job, but another six of um, six of the ten board members. So in all, seven people are gone. That happened yesterday. And so Icon sued them. Who? How did this even reach a judge? Yes, to begin with? yes. Okay. Icon sued them. It Got goes it. to the judge. The judge basically temporarily blocks the deal. And this is it's unusual that the deal didn't get to some sort of shareholder vote. But it's it's interesting because. Because all of these conflicts have come to light as a result of the judge taking a look at this deal and obviously going through text messages and emails that have gone back and forth between the company and Fuji and its directors and its advisors. Um, And what a mess. I mean, it's a total mess. It sort of highlights all kinds of horrible conflicts, you know, weak, weak boards, advisors looking after their own interest. Um, and now you're left with like Xerox, who's still not a very good company. That's still not a very good company. And, you know, this arrangement with Fuji, which is either going to get renegotiated or go through, you know, long litigation and probably some combination of both. Um, in all, it amounts to um, probably some of the worst practices that you could rank together in M&A in one deal. And it speaks a lot to where the M&A market is generally. Well, obviously, in, in general, I'd say, okay, well, that's that's just one deal. But the interesting, one, and yet another interesting thing about this deal is who one of the board directors is who's going. Yes. Chuck Prince. Yes. Who used to be <laughs> chief executive of Citigroup where at the time when it was racking up all these CDOs and mortgage bonds that cost it tens of billions of dollars, and he had to leave just beforehand. But so he's on this board. He's part of the whole cacophony of problems they've got. Yes. But it's a very amusing, from our perspective, throwback to the crisis at the same time as a day before. Yes. The head of M&A at Rothschild in North America basically reiterates one of Chuck Prince's most famous and awful quotes. And, and what's amusing about crisis. that is he actually what, what doesn't... What quote is that, as long as, as long as the music was playing, you know, the quote about as long as the music is playing, people are going to continue to dance. Oh, yeah. And that, was, and that was in sort of summer 2007, mainly about the leverage buyout market, right, right. which then seized up about two days later. And, and the Rothschild... Um, the head of the U.S. M&A Lieber group, Brunner, he, he, yeah. he's, yes, he seems to not, at least he doesn't illustrate, or the piece doesn't illustrate the irony of him even saying mm. this quote. It's as if he's yeah. saying, yeah, there's risk, but hey, everybody wants to do deals, yeah, so was, we're going to get paid. Actually, he was actually saying, to your point, there are risks yes. growing in the M&A market, but hey, let's just all keep going while we can. Yes, exactly, which is exactly what Chuck Prince said yeah. back in 2007, and of course we know what happened then. Yeah, I'm not sure we're quite arguing we're going to get into a great big mess, I mean, this is part of the the issue that uh, our colleague John Foley is finding at Milken this week is no one's really looking at any big problem out there. They're talking about tax cuts. The economy's growing. You know, you've got global growth in the, all 45 OECD countries expected this year. Doesn't it sound great? Which, you know, I read that. You read that probably. And like most journalists go, complacency. There must be complacency <laughs> there. But when you have the, have, have the head of M&A who was running a big M&A department at UBS as the crisis rolled in. Yes. You know, it's not as if he's going to be unaware of this, you'd think. So. Well, there, there's a big difference, too, between what happened in the mortgage market and what's going on yeah. in the M&A market, which is those deals actually happened, whereas these deals are not happening. And um, that's the ed- other interesting aspect to the statistic is that um, – statistics that we've sort of highlighted this week, that broken deals or deals that haven't been completed are actually up. And you see, you can call them protections, you can call them issues. You know, we have situations where um, regulators have come in. That was, you know, the Qualcomm Broadcom deal. Um, But it seems like 
for whatever reason, and some of them similar, some of them not, um, these deals aren't happening. And that also is a really good marker of the top of a cycle. The difference is there's really not a whole lot of risks except for the companies themselves and perhaps what happens to their shares. Yeah, yeah, I mean they they spend a lot of we they waste a lot of time yeah. and money their shareholders' time and money that these CEOs could be putting energy into doing other things, and you know sometimes investment bankers and lawyers get paid even when these deals don't get done or they get paid some portion of them. Um, so part of their job, part of the company's job and the management and the board is to look at these deals and make an assessment about whether or not it's worth their time. Mm-hmm. The environment has changed somewhat and that should be part of the calculation, but they should really not be pushing for deals. There's lots of studies that show that um, it can have long-term negative consequences to stocks if, if companies arrange a deal and those deals are later broken up and it's a waste of time. So look, if, if, if we switch to another deal that happened then, Jen, this is on, on your patch, the Sprint T-Mobile deal. Now that is one where management has spent a lot of time looking at it because this is not the, I mean, they finally announced it this week, but it's hardly the first time they tried to do the deal. Right, Pre- right. Previous negotiations have broken down as recently as what, end of last year? End of last year, right. So I mean, right. on, on a fundamental basis, um, should these companies be together? Well, I here's the argument that they're going forward. So T-Mobile and Sprint, just to kind of set the picture, um, T-Mobile is a number three wireless carrier in the U- United States, and um, Sprint is the laggard. It's number four. And Verizon and AT&T are much bigger. So their argument is that if we combine that we can basically present a credible challenge to Verizon and AT&T to build out this next generation of wireless network known as 5G. And that's true. I mean, basically, they need to combine to really compete with Verizon because and AT&T. Because it's damn expensive to, to, to build it this It's network. very, very expensive. And not only expensive, you need certain assets. You need something called spectrum. And they're all different types of spectrums and variety of it. But, but what's safe to say is if you slam uh, T-Mobile spectrum together with Sprint spectrum, they're much stronger. And they, can, they have the necessary components to build out a nationwide network. Yeah. So, it, you know, the question is, will the FCC and the DOJ buy this argument? And because basically what they tend to look at is what's good for consumers, right? And lower prices is, is always better for consumers. And if you only have three carriers versus four, that could mean that, hey, they're just going to sit back and everyone's going to take a break and just be like, we're going to raise prices. I mean, you can look and see what happened in the airline industry, which is, you know, kind of a great example. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, just fewer and fewer airlines, fewer choice. You're kind of held over the barrel. Yeah, on the other hand, you know, um, airlines, the more they were, the more competitive they got and the more they went into bankruptcy. So, you know, (laughs) it's it's not the best model to follow either way. No, no. But so, I mean, I I do think that they have an argument, you know, and, and what they can do is... Look, AT&T and Verizon still have vastly many more resources at their hands mm. than uh, T-Mobile even combined with, with Sprint. But T-Mobile is really, really good at shaking up the industry. And they did yeah. this in 2011. They basically spurred a price uh, cut uh, war and everybody had to follow. And the thinking is, if you look at their past behavior, well, maybe they'll do the same with 5G. Yeah. And 5G, of course, plays into uh, another deal, which was the Qualcomm Broadcom one, which you mentioned earlier, Lauren, where I think uh, the Trump administration said in part because, I mean, Qualcomm was putting up adverts all over the place and subways and everything saying, we help create 4G, we're great, keep it it American. 
that was one of the reasons for doing it. But I mean, it, it's not just about five G. And you, Lauren, you spotted something else in this deal, or you and Laura, you and um, Jen both did, that makes you think it, it belongs not just because of the regulatory issues, but also the the, the lack of something in this yes, deal. Yes, the break is, fee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what's really interesting is there is absolutely no regulatory break fee which in is this deal, which is bonkers. incredible. Right? It's yes. bonkers, and um, you know it shows one the great negotiating skills of John Legere, who is the T-Mobile CEO, and basically says, like, we have the upper hand in this. Um, we're not going to pay you jack if the government says mm. we can't do this. Lauren, speaking of cross-border deals and regulatory issues, we have another example, which is Sainsbury. Anthony, maybe you can take us through this. I'm not British, so this is a big hey, deal look, that's happening need, over Everyone in, in needs Great supermarkets. Britain. Yeah, I'm going to channel our very own Carol Ryan in the UK, who's, who's writing on this very topic right now. Basically, it emerged over the weekend that Sainsbury, which is one of the biggest uh, supermarket chains in the UK, uh, is doing a deal to buy Walmart's Asda. Asda has long been in the UK supermarket uh, business as well. And it's about £7.3 billion, so what, $10, $11 billion, mm -hmm. give or take off mm -hmm. the top of my head. And that too creates you know, a very big entity, which now leaves, I think, I think the top four um, supermarket chains in the UK now control three quarters of the market, mm -hmm. which you think would be kind of worrying, right? But what the, these guys are arguing is, look, you've got Amazon coming in with delivery when, of course, they bought Whole Foods as well, which is, has turned up in the UK as well. And you've got other places to go. In fact, Carol dug up some great stats that show that you know most Brits uh, shop in at least five different stores and try and spread the wealth around. So there's no, not necessarily a, okay, yes, they own 75% of the market between the four of them, the big guys, but there may be others up and coming, just like there were 10, 15 years ago, which got a lot of these companies in trouble. I mean, as does Profit margins have been dipping a lot over the past couple of years, which is partly what's driving Walmart to think, you know, should we stay in the business? Okay, so there's a, a lot of regulatory risk here. But but I, I think another thing that sort of illustrates the looseness, if you will, <laughs> probably putting it... C carefree. Carefree. <laughs> <laughs> sort of attitude that many uh, chief executives and bankers have is what um, was captured... Uh, on British TV with the CEO was of Sainsbury? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely astounding this. So Mike Coop, who runs Sainsbury's, um, was in between TV interviews with the camera still on him and the mic still on. And OK, maybe he didn't know, but, you know, if you're an chief executive and you've seen enough of these things happening in the past, you should know when to keep your mouth shut. He starts singing a song, not just any song, but, you know, he's looking for <laughs> regulatory approval for a deal that makes his company one of the biggest supermarket chains in the country. And he starts singing, We're in the Money, from 42nd Street. I will add that that regulators look at the like the benefits and losses to consumers and to employees. You know, you bring up Amazon, and yes, the world has changed because of Amazon, but one way that it's changed is that fewer people... People think that fewer people will have jobs and be employed. So right, which is which is a big problem with the T-Mobile Sprint thing. They kept emphasizing how many jobs they were going to create. Yeah, they said there's going to be forty-three billion dollars in which net is present value of synergy, which is absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, actually, a deal earlier in the week between. Um, uh, Two sort of midstream pipeline companies talked a lot about how much synergies that they were going to get out of the deal, but but didn't want to mention that like that means either costs are going to have to rise or there's yeah. going to be some sort of pass. So of course, to there's, there's some, there are a couple of differences. Of course, some regulators really do focus on job losses, and I think in the UK, yes, there will be some some focus on that. There's another s smaller set of deals happening in the in the water utility space in the UK in the US, sorry, which I've been looking at where. 
it's very hard to talk about any cost cuts because then you get the regulators and local politicians going, but hang on, that's bad for shareholders. Not for shareholders, but it's really bad for consumers. So, you know, people and communities. So people in that industry, they really keep quiet. But don't forget, and I wonder how much of this is is, because, is what Marathon's doing in this $23 billion deal you've been, ta- billion deal you've been talking about. Um, last year, we were writing this that, you know, because of the Trump administration's focus on, you know, America first and creating jobs, but we wondered whether there would be a de-emphasis of losing jobs as, or cutting jobs as part of, of any synergies in a deal. And it seems like that is happening in some of these deals that haven't necessarily got the fear of regulators coming in and saying we're not letting this deal happen because of the effect on consumers and employees. So you know, we've got this whole cacophony of things welling up, and yet we've got all these deals coming through which are trying to sort of say, don't worry, we'll find cost cuts to cover the, 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 the premium, and don't worry, everyone will be fine with their jobs. Which... And we're, we're going we're gonna to create more jobs. Yeah, it's like yeah. voodoo math. Or it is, yeah. It. And there, I think the problem is there's this disconnect between, between investors and consumers and normal people whereby, like, the information flow does not happen between the both of them, so companies are allowed to speak out of both sides of their mouths. Well, when you get someone like Mike Coop singing, we're in the money, in a country which for years has been talking about, you know, we hate fat cats having lots of money, the executive having lots of money, that's going to play so badly and exactly goes to your point there, Lauren. All right. On that note, we won't be singing we're in the money. <laughs> for, for many reasons. Get, for many if you don't reasons. mind, I don't think I'll sing anything. <laughs> All right. Well, Lauren, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman, and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.